Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. As well, maybe sort of, kind of, almost always, Brad Jones is here. Yeah, I had nothing else to do, really. Thanks. <laughs> the Marquis de Suede no, is here. As yes, I am. Yeah, Brad had a bad, bad weekend last weekend. He had a he had a major thunderstorm and after Earth, dude. I feel for you. <laughs> after Earth was the highlight. <laughs> and see, that's like the sign of a bad weekend when after Earth is the highlight. At least after Earth was so bad it was hilarious. You could always just, if you wanted to have a better weekend, go to AdamandEve.com, use the promo code DROME to get tickets. Wait. Speaking of sloppy transitions. Well, I figured I'd stay in the Shyamalan mode. Go. Oh, that's me. Yeah, you get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the United States, three free DVDs, and a mystery gift. And Alex dropping shit in the background. Actually, no, that's the baby upstairs putting away groceries. The baby puts away groceries? Gotta start him early, you know? (laughs) Fair enough. Tonight's topic, you guys are probably gonna hear me at my most crotchety old man ever. I already know I'm going to get in a fight with Alex. I presume I'm going to get in a fight with Brad. I've got a couple of different degrees of the question I'm going to ask. Now, I'm not saying CGI is all bad. Brad, you know, you and I have had this discussion so many times, no point beating that into the ground. Have we gotten to the point where CGI is so ingrained into movie culture that younger generations actually have to be reminded that things used to be done Practically, I was listening to the commentary track for Ninja 3 The Domination, shot in 1982, released in 1983, and at least two dozen times, the director and the stunt coordinator had to say, this was not done with CGI, that's an actual guy performing all these pretty insane stunts. And and I thought, okay, that was an isolated incident. Then I listened to the commentary track on Sam Raimi's Crime Wave. At least a dozen times, Bruce Campbell mentions that. I was listening to the commentary on Life Force. By the way, if you can't tell, I got a whole bunch of Scream Factory screeners in the mail. But I was listening to the commentary for Life Force. Toby Hooper keeps mentioning, this was not done with CG. Have we gotten to the point where we actually have to keep reminding people? We didn't always have CGI! I, I Honestly, I think that them repeating that over and over again that this is practical effects and not cgi this was before cgi blah 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 honestly i think is kind of unnecessary because while i know plenty of people who like cgi a lot i don't know of anyone who doesn't also know of practical effects or who who doesn't know that there wasn't always cgi i don't know anyone like that i think even like i i i to people comment before who are who are in high school junior high whatever and and yeah they're pretty well aware that there wasn't always cgi i think that most people know that so i to me it's kind of unnecessary to point out that something made in the early 80s or late 70s had no cgi in it to me it just it it rang of of like this we're trying to sell this movie this this dvd this concept to a younger generation who their entire movie going experience has been in the CGI era. So to me, it just seemed like they had to, they were almost patting themselves on the back, which I think was a little arrogant of going, look, look how much better this looked with no CGI. And if you did it with CGI, it wouldn't look any better than this. 
it, it's sort of wrong with a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of, I actually do think the audience probably doesn't know that CG used to not be the norm instead of being the norm. I think audiences are well aware that there was a time before CGI. That's like say that's like saying like I wonder if somebody is aware that there was once there were once black and white movies. I think that they're saying that it's not CGI just out of a sense of pr- pride that they like what they did and they're they're saying we actually did this, you know, and I like how it turned out. That they're proud Yeah, of I, I think that did. I think so too. I I agree, I agree with that too. What about what about the the kind of concept that CGI, I mean, I've said it before, you both have disagreed with me, but that I think CGI makes for lazy filmmakers. I also think it goes a little farther and makes for lazy film viewers, that they're so used to seeing the new Star Trek or After Earth or or a, the latest Michael Bay come all over a computer jizz fest. They, they're so used to that that it makes them far more critical than they should be of something like Life Force, a movie that, for its scale, was low budget. It was a $30 million film, but today that'd be a $150 million film with CGI that I, I think it breeds sort of an arrogance in the moviegoer. Like, I, I, I agree. I, I've said before that I agree that, uh, that I think most of the time overuse of CGI and stuff like that equates to simple lazy filmmaking especially when it comes to cgi blood do you think that that cgi and uh, an entire generation let's face it there has been an entire generation now brought up on Uh, cgi uh. era movies do you think that makes them a lazy film viewer maybe that that they're being overly critical of something made in the 80s something made in the 70s because to balance that out I was watching all these old movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s while I was growing up in the era of the post-Star Wars practical effects, and I wasn't looking at those and going, oh my god, those look so fake. They could do that so much better in 1988. But nowadays, you got people even looking at a movie from 85 and going, oh my god, that is so fake. You could, I could do that on my laptop. No, I, there were people in the 80s who did. Maybe you, maybe you didn't, but there were people in the 80s and 90s who did that. Who looked at a, a sci-fi film from the 1930s and 40s and kind of scoffed at the effects work and stuff like that? That that's always gone around. But in terms of making them like more critical of stuff from the night from the 1980s, I mean, maybe that happens. Sure, I'm sure it does. But look at the source. It's not like we're dealing with the freaking genius you hear who would say something like that. I've never really run into anyone who's been that overly critical of something from the age, but I'm sure it happens. In term, if that makes them lazy, I don't know, but I, I, I don't really think that that's a new thing because I certainly remember people in the 80s and 90s doing that with, with also doing that with older movies. I don't think that the overuse of CGI has made for lazy audiences because audiences are only concerned with the end product. So if you can achieve the same effect with practical means as opposed to CGI, the audience is not going to know the difference. And with regards to the, um, like, oh, well, this thing that they did in the 80s looked like crap, they're looking at it because, yeah, it probably did look like crap by 1980 standards. If they'd done a good effect even then, again, the audience is only concerned with the end product. Yeah. Michael Bay, for instance, when he did practical effects in his earlier films – 
they looked good. That's why they gave him a career. And yes, he moved over to using a lot of CGI, but... If they, if they had done it right the first time, you look at something like Life Force. Amazing practicals. You read reviews by 20-somethings. And they're like, oh my god, well how did they not use CGI to get rid of this and do this and do that? All they do is pick it apart. Not, not look at it and go, you know, even by 1985 standards, this looked phenomenal. Well, I don't think a 20-year-old saying that speaks for the general public, because if they're saying, why didn't they use CGI in the 1980s, he's just pretty fucking ignorant and you shouldn't listen to him. Well, then what about the whole loss of old filmmaking techniques? What about something like shooting black and white film? We've discussed it before, how you cannot shoot on black and white and light it the same as you can on color. That's what the problem Mel Brooks ran into when he made Young Frankenstein. Even by 1974, no one working at Universal had made a black and white movie in so long. No one knew how to make a black and white movie anymore. Tarantino did the same thing with Kill Bill, probably Volume 2 as well, but with Volume 1. All the black and white scenes are clearly lit like their color because they were actually shot in color and only made black and white in post. Uh, but, 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 but it was originally supposed to be released in cover color, but was turned to black and white so they could get the R rating. If you look at that scene in overseas copies of it, uh, the uncut version, that sequence is in color. No, I'm talking about some of the flashbacks to like when the bride is shot. In that. I, I don't mean I don't mean the massacre at the restaurant. I know why that was tinted black and white. Oh, no, okay. I, I, I'm talking about like just the the flashbacks to like uh, the bride and when she's getting gunned down and all that. All that uh-huh. stuff was was shot in color and then digitally made black and white because Tarantino even admitted it looked better. And I agree, if it had been lit right, it would have looked more dramatic in black and white. But you could tell immediately that the lighting is all wrong for black and white. And I'm, that is not a pick on Tarantino. That's just the first example I can think of. You have other movies that do that nowadays as well, clearly shot in color. Or you have ones like American History X, where Tony Kay had to go find old-timers that knew how to shoot in black and white to shoot the black and white sequences. It's kind of sad, isn't it, when you got to dig the old-timers out of retirement to do an older technique because the modern filmmaker, the modern crews have completely lost how to do anything. There was one, I, I was watching a documentary on digital film. They said they actually ran into a movie or ran into a crew on a recent movie. It was a, it was a Warner brothers project, not a Batman or anything, but something like that. The cameraman has, he'd been working in Hollywood for five years as professionally as a cameraman. He didn't know how to thread a film camera because all he'd ever shot on was digital. Is that sad that we've lost these older film techniques? It's just how fast they vanished. If the end product is still good, I'm fine because bottom line is I, just, I want a good movie. I go, I'm paying to see a good movie. And if the movie is good, yeah, okay, cool. Then the movie's good. I'm, I don't really, it, it doesn't really bother me about lighting in a sequence that was converted into black and white. I mean, sure, it probably looks better if it was originally shot in black and white, but that's not really the main thing that I'm kind of looking for in, in that scene. And honestly, it would be kind of hypocritical of me to even talk trash about that anyway, because I've converted scenes into black and white before. 
I mean, like the, the CG, the CGI versus practical is one thing. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. I'm always going to prefer, I'm always going to prefer practical effects over CGI. With that being said, though, I won't hate something just because it's got CGI in it. Hell, even with practical movies, I've seen before where you know the practical effects weren't all that good. But even even then, I prefer bad practical effects over good CGI. Quite honestly. But um, but yeah, even then, at, at the end of the day, I still want a good movie. So if there's a solid script, solid writing, solid directing, you know, I'm still going to be cool with it. I'm not I'm not really that picky on the black and white issue, quite honestly. OK, about the black and white issue. A few years ago, I read an interview with uh, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, and he was talking about when he did the DP work on The Man Who Wasn't There, the Coen Brothers film, which is in black and white. And he talked about the fact that it's in black and white, so I shot it this way because that's how you do black and white, and it was no thing. And it's good that you have people out there that know how to do it, but even in the tone of that interview, he's like, nobody does black and white anymore. You know, and he was just matter of fact. He wasn't cynical about it like you are, Josh. He was just, you know, nobody does black and white anymore. And, you know, and also I think that in the case of, like, Kill Bill, you know, if if the whole movie was converted into black and white i mean that would be one thing i mean that might be like a little i'm sure i'd get used to it but i'm sure at first it would be a little distracting because there 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 certainly is a noticeable difference it just wouldn't be the deciding factor of me just writing it off as a bad movie not not at all in the case of kill bill it's just a flashback you know it's it's just a scene it's a few minutes long whatever uh you know i'm I'm not going to be that nitpicky about about that and, and, see, and yeah, Kill nobody... Bill, I actually even enjoyed most of Kill Bill Volume 1. I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it. I didn't pick that to pick on Tarantino. I just picked that because I remember sitting in the theater and immediately the film critic in me went, this was not shot black and white, but it's black and white. Yeah, because you were looking for stuff to get mad about. No, yeah, it wasn't. I, I, I saw the scene and I'm like, it wasn't shot in black and white because, well, nobody shoots in black and white. Oh, well, let's move on. And but but uh, I mean to be fair, like if if you were to ask me an example of like what's a, a thing you could think of off the top of your head that was something that wasn't shot in black and white but then converted, yeah, honestly that would be one of the first movies. That pro- no, no, I take that back. Death Proof would come to my head before that movie would. Proof has has a much longer sequence that's in black and white, and really, honestly, it's in black and white for no reason whatsoever. I, I think he thought he was being stylistic, but when Tarantino doesn't even like that film, I don't even think he'd defend that logic. Alex, you said something a little while ago that I wanted to go back to. You said the audience doesn't care how the effect, the movie, the edit, whatever, is achieved. But the studios do. I believe it was Douglas Trumbull. Shortly after he made RoboCop in 87, this is right, this is like early 90s, you know, CGI is starting to creep in. They're starting to do CG mats and things like that, even if they're, they can't replicate cheaply like The Abyss or Terminator 2. He was hired to do the, all the matte paintings for a movie. He didn't say which one. And, okay, you know, he gave him this price, and they're like, oh, wow, that's really cheap. And then he's like, okay, well, I need this and this for supplies. And they're like, you're not going to do it on a computer? And he didn't get the job because he was going to do it practically, and they wanted, well, see, CGI is this new hip thing. We want to be able to use the promotional materials to go, we're doing CGI mats, not matte paintings. Do you think that affects the final product when the studio is saying, we care 
how it's done, even if it's more expensive to do it with CG, we want it done with CG. Okay, studios aren't concerned about how the product looks. They're concerned about how much money it makes. So if they're going to go with CGI for the cheaper option, yeah, they're going to do that. And a lot of times studios have contractual obligations to CGI companies. They're like, this movie has to be done with CGI because, well, we have to. We have this contract with ILM or whomever that it has to be CGI. That it strips the director of their own individual choices. And that's studio interference, which has been going on since, well, forever. Yeah, and even in terms of that, I mean, yeah, there's taking my issues with CGI out of it. I mean, there's been things like that in the past, too, going from silent films to sound films, black and white to color, full frame versus cinemascope. It's one of those things that's always going to happen. There's always going to be a transition into something newer regardless if it's better or not you know that's up to whoever's watching it but see i'm not so sure about that because look at the post star wars era how everything before star wars because john dykstra and them when they made the effects for star wars that was new that was groundbreaking their motion control cameras and that was something totally new everyone Mm -hmm. immediately adopted that and you might throw my own argument back at me well what you mean you're not going to use motion control but at the same time it clearly looked better than say like logan's run which was made only a year before star wars frankly looks like crap whereas cgi went the other way early cgi looked like crap until it came into its own whereas practicals went we made the next leap and that's where we are even audience barriers put up in the post star wars era when for motion control instead of the old model on a string that the 50s and 60s gave us i like practical effects better than cgi that's my bottom line i'm not trying to get into the psychosis of the studios behind it or the audiences i I can't speak for an entire audience of people i i have no idea like effects they you know they they changed throughout they they changed throughout the years the effects in the 80s were different than the effects in the 30s and the in the 40s and you know now we have cgi and my my problem a huge problem i have with with cgi is just that it it looks you know regardless if it's quote-unquote good or bad it still looks like an effect it still looks like something that's not there like, I can tell that it's something that's made on a computer. No matter how good it looks, no matter how great it supposedly looks, it still looks like something that's not there. It's still You can still tell that that's made on a computer. And with older effects, you know, regardless if it was good or bad, I like that there's an actual physical object on screen for someone to interact with. And plus, the transition into CGI, too, made for much more spectacle in filmmaking. It turned it into just a giant spectacle of cartoons, explosion, blah, 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 all of this stuff that's just made on a computer. And in a lot of cases, you know, that's, that just, that completely, that completely takes over from actual good storytelling. Some, not all the time, sometimes. So that's problems I have with it. I don't know about marketing. I don't know about the, what's going on in the heads of the, viewers who go see this i i don't know all i know is just how i feel about it i'm gonna go back to the fact that it's really you know the viewer is concerned about the end product how the effect looks at the end of the day 
to put it this way, things like motion control cameras and CGI, those are just new tools added to that's just a whole wealth of tools that filmmakers already have, and how they use them is up to them. Put it this way, you have a guy that's building a house, and he can use a screwdriver or he can use a drill to put the screws in faster. Ultimately, it doesn't matter to the home buyer how they did it, as long as they get a home. Same thing with the movie. If it looks good in the final product and that the audience doesn't can, can't see how it was done to where they can't see, oh, that was CGI, to where they still enjoy the finished product, then it worked. So are you saying that, using your house analogy, that you'd be okay having a house built for you that instead of being having actual wood for the walls, if it was faux wood, because it looks the same, does the same product, it might not last as long, it might not be as sturdy, but... Hey, you can't tell the difference, right? Well, yeah, but a, a well, CGI, see, CGI, CGI isn't going to kill you. Yeah, but just see, wait, Brad. You will become self-aware at some point. That huh. that goes to the the over-reliance on CGI. A house that's built out of faux wood. Yeah, that totally sucks. Fuck that house. Sorry. And the same thing with CGI. They over a lot of filmmakers rely on it way too much, and it really brings down their movie to where you're going. F that movie. Yeah, yeah. When you use CGI to have a car just simply make a right turn when going normal speed, you're an idiot. Or Brad, an example both of us pointed out, the CGI Tribble in Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, why? Seriously, why? You it couldn't have gotten a hairball with a little air bladder to make it breathe? Really? That, co that completely took me out of that scene. Why? Why did that have to be a Why? Why did, that, why did you have to waste time doing that? It, it seems like it would be not only more expensive, but more time intensive because Carl Urban's not actually looking or touching something but th that's neither here nor there what about lost filmmaking techniques or I should say evolved filmmaking techniques now I'm not necessarily saying that this is a bad place we've gone into but you look at a movie from let's just go with, stick with our lifetimes the 70s through today movies have sped up quite a bit when I was watching The Howling, when I did that projection booth for The Howling, one of the things all three of us brought up were, this movie is, is slow, in a good way. If The Howling were made today, the same script, the same actors, etc., this movie would not be the same because it would have to be sped up. You could not spend the entire first half hour on character development. Or even Uwe Boll's Assault on Wall Street. Nothing happens for the first hour. It's all character buildup. The movie feels like a movie that was made in the 70s. Audiences hated that movie. I disagree. I thought Uwe Boll's Assault on Wall Street is easily his best movie. But It's awesome. But do you think we've kind of lost the style of, of that new Hollywood brought us, that everything's got to be flashier? I saw an interview with James Cameron pre-Avatar, where he even said, if you don't have an action scene in the first 10 minutes, you're going to lose the audience. And I disagree with that on so many levels. I do too. Yeah, I, I I'm with you on that. Things are they move they move a lot quick. Movies move a lot quicker now. There's a lot more. It's kind of like I said with the evolution of CGI. Now most stuff is just most action movies are just spectacle filmmaking, and so yeah, you're gonna have an action sequence or something like that within the first ten minutes of the movie. Dear Lord, imagine a slasher movie with the pacing of Halloween being made today. It um, wouldn't, and Rob Zombie proved that with his remake, because his remake was done in a modern style, and besides the plot issues I had, that was part of the problem. It didn't feel like Halloween anymore. It felt like a 
Halloween sequel. Sure. I think that that's st- definitely studio interference, uh, of course, uh, it by and large is, you know. They look at the audience as, you know, lazy and ADD-ridden. You know, something exciting has to happen in the first five minutes. I think that that's how they look at audiences, and really, I think that's what some audience members are like. And see, I don't think that's necessarily a new thing. No, the, I don't either. But Because, like, there was a producer Harlan Ellison used to work for on The, the Sixth Sense, the, the 70s TV series, whose name was Stan Shepner. And Ellison kept bringing him intelligent, paced scripts. And Shepner had to take him away at one point and go, we are making the Sunday funnies for these people. They don't want character. They want spectacle. And that was on 70s television, man. See how much worse it's gotten now? It happens more now. It's definitely a studio thing because they go to the filmmakers and they're like, well, demographics and our market research shows that you have to have an action scene here, here, and here in order for the movie to be a hit with audiences. So directors will buckle and do that at studio interference. But then you do have plenty of movies that you brought up Uwe Boll's Assault on Wall Street where the filmmaker made the movie that they wanted to make and they told their story how they wanted to tell it. So it's not made for lazy filmmakers. It's just made for money-hungry studios that just look at statistics instead of art. But do do you see that as a shift that that we've kind of lost the slower-paced movie? Brad, you brought up Halloween, and I brought up the Halloween sequels. Look at the progression of those. They got faster. they They started losing character development, and they started relying on gore, which even though, you know, I have issues with the first Halloween. Carpenter was brilliant in how really didn't show anything. And then I, the later ones just relished in how much they could show. I think that that's typically always been the case with sequels, though. You know, in a horror movie, in a, in a series of horror films, whether it's the Halloween movies, the Friday the 13th movies, the Jaws movies, the Psycho movies, each sequel kind of ups the ante a little bit on violence, uh, uh, sex, gore, stuff like that. It's the same thing in, in action movies as well. In action movies, in comedies, each sequel, you know, kind of tries to one-up the other one, whether it's, you know, on sophomore comedy or action sequences, stunts. I, that's, I think that's, that's something that's kind of usually always been the case. with. Oh, with I think a perfect example would be the Scanner sequels. The first yeah, film yeah. had a really good, gory, unexpected head explosion, right? Yeah. So what did the second one have? Four head explosions. What did the What did the third one have? Nine head explosions. That became yeah. the head explode series. Yeah, the the ball in Phantasm, you know. Yeah, you had one. It's been a long time since I've seen the first one. Were there two in the first one or just one? I think there was just the one. Okay, because it's been a long time since I've seen the first film. But mm-hmm. yeah, and then the second one had the three different ones, and then. There was an entire Reggie's pinned to the wall with a dozen of them damn things at the end of 3. Yeah, Phantasm 3 had more balls than a gay porno. (laughs) Not sure if that's a good pun or not. It's a good one. Even the way trailers are cut today, Scott and I did an episode of Lost in the Static where we watched the trailer for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then the trailer for the then-unreleased Tron Legacy. And we were like, you can totally tell that not only are these made for technically different age audiences, but these were made in totally different eras of Hollywood. 
trailers used to be slow. They tell you the story. If they were done right, they wouldn't ruin it. But they sometimes did that too. Now it's all about as many quick cuts and flash frames as you can get to disorient your audience, it seems. Trailers are simultaneously better and worse now than they used to be. But um, worse in the sense that, like, trailers, older trailers really had much more of a personality to them than a lot of the ones today do. But at the same time, older trailers tended to give away a little too much about the movie. Older trailers, if they did it right. Yeah, yeah, they they really did give away way too much. Honestly, a lot of them showed you the entire film in about four minutes. Uh, So really, and in that regard, I think the trailers are a little better nowadays in that sense. So, I mean, yeah, they're a little flashier nowadays. There's there's more cuts and stuff like that to them. But look at the movies. The movies themselves are flashier and have a lot more cuts to them. Than older movies in than older movies in general did. So I think that trailers like that are actually kind of a good representation of those movies. But yeah, so I think that there's some good and some bad in how trailers have changed over the years. Well, and then like you, you said, you were talking about the cuts. You you've really got this this thing nowadays where it get as many cuts as possible. I saw a, a it's some indie indie film that was advertised right in the trailer. The average shot length is 34 seconds in this movie. In other words, they're outright telling you, we didn't cut this movie for ADD people. Mm. Is it kind of sad that we've gotten to the point where that has to be part of the tagline? Um, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've seen older trailers that kind of gave away their gimmick in, tra- in, in the movie trailer, whether it was CinemaScope, whether it was sound, whether it was uh, movie Wicked Wicked, where... It's like split Two screen. movies? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Through, throughout the whole thing. So that's I don't think that's a new thing. There's There's been trailer, plenty of trailers all throughout time that kind of explain their gimmick or style of filmmaking in the trailer. Hell, look at, you know, the, the, the old 3D trailers. Um, or anything William Castle made. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I, I don't think that that's a new thing. That you're not constantly going, the hell did I just watch? Must have been uh, some pretentious ass trailer that started. It probably with was, yeah. Sundance official selection. Oh, yeah, okay. You know what? Whenever I'm doing Trailer Park, whenever I see Sundance official selection, I go, "Oh God!" <laughs> nowadays, that's not a that's not a sign of a good movie. That's a sign of a pretentious movie. Nowadays, in mm-hmm. the '90s, that was a sign of a good movie. I I don't see a lot of I I don't see a lot of the Sundance movies. The the trailers that are all just like mashed together, quick shots and everything. Is purely an American thing, I've noticed. Is it? It doesn't speak. Because, like, I watched the trailers for Wreck-It Ralph. I watched the American trailer next to the Japanese trailer, which the movie's called Sugar Rush in Japan, by the way. And they had a lot more of Brad's favorite character in that, too. In that oh, version. Because that's what that movie needed. <laughs> she was the but... reason that movie got made, Brad. Really? Yeah, because they originally... Apparently, that kind of movie is much more popular over there because it was co-financed by a Japanese company, and part of it was they wanted a bigger Sugar Rush component. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. I, I thought that movie was overall fine, but dear God, that character tested my damn patience. I, but, I, I call her cartoon Cassandra Baker. But I like Cassandra. I like Cassandra, too. The, the Japanese trailer for Sugar Rush slash Wreck-It Ralph 
It's the American trailer, but the entire thing is voiced over by a guy speaking in Japanese, and he is not at all ever talking about what's going on in the screen. In fact, he's going on about the character of Vanellope, you know, the annoying little girl, long before she's even introduced in the trailer. Again, because that was the focus, they knew the Japanese audience was much more into that. I don't know if that speaks to their, you know, like a pedophilic vibe or just type of video games they play or that well, anime influence but well no i think the big thing with japan is the song sugar rush is done by akb40 which is one of the hugest selling bands in japan that could be a factor look at the trailers too uh um the domestic versus the foreign trailer to prometheus trailer was much more action oriented whereas the foreign trailer actually kind of gave you a semblance of sort of what was going on plot wise with the movie well, yeah, okay. No, yeah, now that you mention that, yes, I do remember that. So I actually think we, we discussed that on Facebook at one point. Like, wow, these are clearly made for different movie-going audiences. And you can tell, well, I mean, hell, the Brits usually get the, especially in the 80s, they got the director's cuts of all those movies that were sliced to ribbons over here. Like Life Force in Brazil and all that. The Brits got those uncut. They did yeah. great. We get the butchered 90-minute American versions. They tank. What a surprise, yeah. huh? When you cut right. half your movie out, maybe it doesn't work. Funny yeah. that, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. And this one I don't think is a bad change. I've noticed that and there were always longer movies, but I've noticed movies are allowed to be much longer nowadays, haven't you? I don't um, think they would have released Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, even in their theatrical cut versions, if those movies had been made same way in even the 80s, I think they would have required them to be cut down to under two hours. I really do. Uh, in the 80s, maybe. But before then, in the days of like David Lean and Lawrence of Arabia and Cleopatra, uh, there's a chance that movie still could have been long. Well, well with David Lean, those movies actually had an intermission where they would stop the movie and they'd be like, okay, go get yourself some popcorn, go to the bathroom, and then we'll start the next reel. When I saw Titanic in 97 with my wife, we were surprised. I I had not been to a movie since the 80s that had an intermission. Right after Jack and Rose's love scene, basically when the movie turns into an action flick, there was a 15-minute intermission, and I was like, okay, I haven't had one of these since... Since I was a kid in the 80s. That's weird. When I saw it, it didn't have an intermission. When I saw it, it did. I was surprised. The last time I can... Yeah, our our, our cut that we got here in Springfield didn't have an intermission. The last time I can remember hearing someone say they had a movie with an intermission, and this wasn't a movie that I saw, but I think Dave was at that Gods and Generals movie. I think I remember him saying that it, that it had an intermission. I, I, I don't know if... did did. Did Return of the King have an intermission? That's the one I didn't see in the theater, so I'm not sure. I, I know Fellowship and Towers did not. I do not know if Return of the King did, because I didn't see the, anyone theatrically. Yeah, yeah. Hell, uh, I, I remember seeing, uh, uh, when I was a kid, I had um, Rio Bravo taped off of uh, uh, Cinemax, I believe. And they put an intermission in it, and really, I, I, it, it's, all, it's like two hours and 15 minutes long, I think. So, so what do you do for the intermission when you're watching it on cable? Is it a couple of commercials and they resume the movie or what? No, what it was was like it, it was just a, a still shot of John Wayne with uh, 
my my rifle pony and me the ricky nelson song playing and there was like a little counter clock on there that was counting down for when the intermission was going to be over well that's something else we've lost overtures at the beginning of movies like star trek the motion picture you've just got black for what is it two and a half three minutes while the theme plays before the screen actually comes up that yeah, used that to be bl- commonplace they d- that that black for two and a half minutes still moves faster than the rest of the movie the great the great race had a overture at the beginning of it and also that had an intermission too and that movie is a little less than two and a half hours long the thing that bugs me about the running times thing is like i brought up with how the house on haunted hill rebank in 99 he cut those crucial scenes that are there for both story and continuity reasons that create both plot holes and continuity holes by being cut uh-huh. only amount to about three minutes of screen time. Mm-hmm. And the reason he cut them had to get the running time down. The movie's only like an hour 27 anyway. Good Did that God. three minutes really matter? Yeah. You yeah. had to chop three minutes out of it to create a plot hole in the mo- or Or even like Prometheus. Listening to the commentary, and keep in mind, Brad, I do like Prometheus. I think it's a mess, but at the same time, I love it. Almost all the deleted scenes on the DVD and Blu-ray fill in a ton of the plot holes that are in the movie. They were yeah. all cut because Ridley Scott said it screwed the pacing up. He, he, he outright says on the commentary, he'd rather have a well-paced movie than a movie that makes sense. That's, I think that's... that is idiotic on such a massive degree. For I a director totally to agree. say that. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. And and yeah, that would have cleared up so much stuff in that movie because I I like I like the movie, but yeah, it's it's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. I think it would have um, done better if the if the early reviews had not every review had not been this movie makes no goddamn sense. And also and also check this out too. Like uh uh Die Hard Five was cut down to ninety minutes so it could have more show times at theaters. It was all it, because like they felt safer releasing that movie with an R rating if they cut it down to 90 minutes, that way it would have more showings throughout the day and much make had them to get cut for that. How how much time had to get cut out to get it down to 90? I believe over like a half an hour. Now, I know I still haven't seen it, but I know how much you hated it. Do you really do you think a half hour would change your mind or is no. it so bad that it's irredeemable no, it's, to you? It's 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 so bad that it's irredeemable. I'm more so just talking about the idea of cutting it cutting a movie down to 90 minutes so it has more show times. That way they'll be more comfortable with releasing it as an R rating. No, that that half my issues with that movie were not plot holes. That movie had so many problems with it that adding a half an hour to it would not make any goddamn bit of difference well it's goes back to studio interference versus director's decision you know if the director backs the studio on this decision that you're right i could cut a half hour from this it may make for a better movie but if the director's like i want this two hour 15 minute movie because this is the story i want to tell and the studio's like nope you got to cut it to 90 minutes i don't fault the director for that there is a really funny story about when uh, Chimino directed uh, the Sicilian, the, the studio told him, like, okay, you can you can make this movie, but it has to be under two hours. Yeah, I think he signed true. a contract that guaranteed he'd deliver an under two hour film. 
Yeah, and the story goes that he gave him a cut of the movie that was two and a half hours long, and they demanded that he cut it, and he said, I can't. There's nothing I can cut. If I cut stuff, it's it's not going to be any good. It's not going to make any sense. So they're like, no, sorry, you got you to gotta cut it down. You got to cut it down to two hours. So the copy he gave him took out all the action sequences. He goes, all right, all right, motherfuckers, here you go. You want your copy under two hours? All right, I cut out all of your action sequences. And then they took the movie away from him and edited it themselves. But in all honesty, I think that's arrogance on the director's part. I think if he signed a contract saying I will deliver a two-hour movie and he delivers a 90-minute or a two-hour and 30-minute movie, he made the mistake. Paul Thomas Anderson did the same thing with Boogie Nights where he guaranteed he'd deliver a movie that was under two hours. The movie he delivered was not. But he was able to prove to them, if you let me do this, this will work. And it did. I don't know how much of that is arrogance because – Chimino is kind of right there. Like, if anything else is cut, it, it had to be that long. If anything is cut here, it's not going to make any sense. I don't think that's arrogance. I think that's a direct... Now, with Heaven's Gate, it was arrogance. With with the Sicilian... It was also indulgence. On Heaven's yeah, yeah, yeah. Heaven's Gate's a totally different story than the Sicilian. With the Cecil, In the case of the Sicilian and with Boogie Nights, they... They wanted the movie to be good. I think that's just a director wanting his movie to be good. In those instances, I don't think that's arrogance. What about when you do the exact opposite? Where you you promise to deliver a movie, say, of 90 minutes, and the cut you turn in is 82 minutes, like Crime Wave was with Sam Raimi. The studio takes it away from you and says, "Uh, no, we're now going to go fill in the rest of the eight minutes you didn't promise us. Yeah, that's, that's a little different. I don't know. I guess if you don't have, I guess in a situation like that, it's sort of like, well, if I don't have anything else to say, um, well, because I that's guess the it, reason like Crime Wave has the bookends at the end of him being executed and the nuns trying to rescue him from his execution. None that, of that was shot for the movie. That was all shot after the fact so they could get it up to 90 minutes. Isn't that also why The Fog has that opening scene with John Houseman? Yeah, because they needed to pad the running time out. They well, but yeah. that one, the fog was also a mess. Uh, and keep in mind, I love the fog. But even Carpenter says right on the commentary, the initial cut that they turned into Avco Embassy was a disaster. So they uh-huh. had to go back. They had to all the stuff with Adrian Barbeau being attacked on the roof of the radio station. All that was shot as pickups. All uh-huh. the stuff on the boat with Jamie Lee Curtis and the body falling on her. That was all pickups. A bunch of the stuff around town of the cars freaking out, those were all pickups. They just realized with their initial cut, damn, movie didn't work. So they just and needed they, to go and fix it. Yeah, and, and you know, and sometimes that that works. That that works adding some stuff in there like that, because I like the fog. I think that opening scene with Hausman is completely unnecessary. It didn't need to be there. And, but, uh, yeah, but in terms of the other stuff, yeah, yeah, uh, you can you can certainly add some stuff to your movie to make it a little longer and it and it can work the trick is is making it work seamlessly and making sure it doesn't feel like filler and padding or you go the other direction and you you pull a Highlander 2 and actually make the director's cut somehow worse <laughs> right one of the very few times i've ever said the director's cuts worse than the studio cut how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, because sometimes sometimes there's just nothing you can do to a bad movie. Sometimes the, you, the, you just can't do anything to fix it. 
Alex? Well, it seems that we've gone, like, to agreeing on the fact that it's not really lazy filmmakers as much as lazy, well, greedy studios. But I think sometimes it is the filmmakers who want... And there are two different types of filmmakers that that go to appease the studios. I think filmmakers that do it because they actually think, you know what, the studio is the one that gave me the money, they're right. And then there are ones that go, I'm never going to get hired again if I don't listen to them. And I think those are weak filmmakers that do Those that. are, yeah, those are studio hacks. Those are hired guns. Those are your Sean Levies, people like that. that I mean, your, your, Brian, your Brian Levant. The, those are those kind of filmmakers. Those aren't Scorsese's. Those aren't people like that. Those are just hired guns by studios. So, of course, they're going to do whatever the studio wants them to do. That's what they're hired to do. Yeah, and the people that do that, they're not really memorable, good filmmakers. Yeah. What about this whole loss of filmmaking techniques? Because of the fact that, because we have such a throwback movement going on in Hollywood with all these people making movies like they were made in the 50s, like they were made in the 70s, like they were made in the 80s, you've got all these throwback movies that are trying to be like the filmmakers are making a movie like they remember watching on cable. Do you think it's a bad thing that, they have to go and dig all the old guys out of retirement because no one knows how to use a 16-millimeter camera anymore. No one knows how to get playback off of a screen without that rolling. Is that bad that nobody even remembered? Like like that one newspaper that did that project called All on Paper, where for the entire month they were going to put out the student newspaper at a college using 1980s technology and the way they did it in the 80s. Even the professors who were there in the 80s didn't remember how they did it without computers. Is it sad that we've lost this knowledge that when these old timers die out, it's only going to be going for, to an old book to find out how they used to make a movie? That's, That's like saying, is it sad that none of us know how to like ride horses anymore because we've all moved on to cars? And that none of us know how to shoot a silent film with those old cameras. I mean, that's just the evolution. That's just the evolution of filmmaking. That's always happened, and that's that always is going to happen. But do you, do you think that with the retro throwback, that maybe people should be thinking a little bit more about that? For, for instance, like um, the, with the all on paper thing, they couldn't even find some of the equipment. They had to go on Craigslist and find it in scrungy old basements that hadn't been touched in 20 years. I mean, there was there was a filmmaker I was he needed to film a sequence that was supposed to look like an old, you know, home movie that was shot in like the early 80s on a camcorder mm-hmm. and they couldn't he said it did not look right when they shot the footage on digital and then just computer aged it. So he wanted to go find an actual 1983 camcorder and an actual 1983 tape. Mm-hmm. He said that was harder to do than anything in the rest of the movie. Nobody even has this equipment anymore, but it looked more realistic to the filmmaker. He cared more that this looks like it was shot in 83. Yeah, I think that's good. I think there needs to be more people like that. I think that, like, you know, Tarantino has talked before about how he he still wants to shoot on, he still wants to shoot on film and has kind of lost a little bit of, it lost a little bit of passion in the sense that, in the sense that you know, more people want him to shoot on digital, but he just doesn't want to do it. He says, "I got into this world for filmmaking to make films, so I'm going to shoot on film. And if it gets to the point to where I can't shoot on film anymore, and they just want me to shoot digital, I'm not going to do that." So I, I do believe. I mean, yeah, there's always going to be the evolution of filmmaking, and 
obviously that can be a bad thing and that can be a good thing depending on what we're talking about. But I, I do, but I do think that there still needs to be the option of whether you want to shoot on film or not or whether you want to shoot on digital. You should still have the option to do something practically if you want to do it practically. You should still have the option to want to make your movie look good. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be forced to go along with the change. You shouldn't be forced to shoot digitally if you have the means to shoot it on film. You shouldn't be forced to do something CGI when you can easily do it practically. Sometimes the market decides that, yes, you are forced to this, and that's what kind of angers me. At the same time, I'm on the side that why would you support something that's not there? Like Alex brought up, nobody shoots black and white anymore. Ted Newsom, when he was shooting parts of The Naked Monster, that movie was made over 18 years, shot a little bit at a time every year. And he said by the end, they didn't have anyone that knew how to process 16 millimeter film. He basically had to send the film to Europe to get it processed because there was no one mm-hmm. that would process 16 millimeter film anymore. Just no one. You use 16 millimeter film? What are you thinking? You know what, Josh? I don't know how to use a telegraph machine because I grew up in an era where we used telephones. Technology changes. It happens. But like Brad said, is it right that you're forced to change? What if you really are a Mr. Burns and you still think the telegraph is the best way to communicate? You don't want to use a phone. The market dictated that we no longer support the telegraph. Well, you're in the minority, you know. You're you're that one, one holdout that you're either going to do it be damned when the rest of society is going to do it. You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see somebody make you know, one of these throwback films, say it's set in 1983, use all 1983 technology, the cameras, the editing, the opticals, the printers, everything. Make a movie today like it was made in 1983. Do you mm. think that would be practical to do? No pun intended. Double entendre there, Brad. Sure. Yeah, of course I It'd do. It'd be expensive, I think. Just, I mean, find, just s- finding the equipment, I don't think would be easy. Sure. Yeah, you, of course. Of course you could do that. I think. I think some people are too lazy to do that, but we of, should of, do of, that. Of, of course you can. I mean, the thing the thing is, is is it's a lot more expensive. So you would certainly have to have the means to do it. Look at my movies. Look at the way they're shot, because that's that's all I have to work with. Yeah, you said numerous times you would have shot the snob movie on film if you could have afforded it. Uh, oh yeah, if if I had a if I had a boatload of money and could afford to and could have afforded to do that and to have it look well you know then yeah to have it look well i mean i certainly wouldn't want it to look like manos um <laughs> but yeah so obviously i'd want it yeah, to just look because it's shot on film doesn't mean it necessarily looks good. yeah 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 like i i yeah dear god um so yeah i if i had the money and the means to make to do that and do it right of course of course i would have of, of, of course i would have which kind of drives me a little batty when when you have these huge multi-million dollar pictures that will use CGI for a car making a right turn or a triple. Yeah, exactly. Really guys, come on. You have the funding to make this look good. Make it look good. Don't make it look like a cartoon. You, you have the money and the power to make, to make it look like it's something that's actually freaking there. My final thoughts, you know, if a director wants to shoot using older technology, if it works for their movie, you know, more power to them as long as they're not doing it for the sake of, oh, we shot this on old tech. 
But I'm going to call you a hipster, Josh, because you're like, oh, I, I watch movies on 16mm. You probably don't know what that is. I never had a 16mm <laughs> camera. You're just being a shithead. I agree with points that both of you are making. Because I, I agree with... I agree with yeah, I agree with points that both of you are making. Honestly, at the end of the day, I, I I do just want a good movie. I think that the movie should also be made in the way that the director wants to make it. If the director wants to use a bunch of CGI, I would disagree with it. But if that's what he wants to do, it's his movie. Now, I don't think that he should be forced to use CGI. I I I don't get into the whole bad studio interference thing. I I don't. I think. He should make the movie how he wants it to look. If you want it, if you want to use practicals with it, dude, by all means, do it. I think it looks a lot freaking better. But you know, if you want your movie to be CGI, then I'll disagree with it. But it's their movie. He can he can do it how he wants. But we are out of time. TheCinemaSnob.com. Suede Alex, since you've been fighting with me all night, call me a hipster, you little douchebag. Where can we find you? Uh, GeekJuiceMedia.com. You can find me at the same geekjuicemedia.com as well as 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys. I thought we could find you at a coffee shop drinking a frappuccino and talking about the work of Francois Truffaut, hipster Josh.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.